Roundtable. Um, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Helix Center's very first um, Zoom Roundtable. Of course, you all appreciate we've been forced uh, online by the uh, ongoing corona pandemic, and we're looking forward soon to having ourselves back in our normal venue. But until then, we're, we're being we're adapting as best we can. And uh, here we are with our first fall 2020 uh, roundtable on ethics and AI. Um, I'm joined here with uh, the Helix Executive Director, Ed Nersessian. I'm Jerry Hurwitz, the Associate Director. And today we have an, a, an esteemed panel of uh, experts in, uh, in uh, I'll read their bios to you in just a moment, but uh, we're looking forward to having a really wonderful, robust conversation about this very important topic. Um, let me just say a word about some of our participants. Uh, the, the, uh, our sort of acting moderator today is Brandon Fiddleson. And uh, Brandon is a distinguished professor of philosophy at Northeastern University. Before teaching at Northeastern, Brandon had held teaching positions at Rutgers University of California, Berkeley, San Jose State, and Stanford, and visiting positions at the Munich Center for Mathematical Philosophy. Gabrielle Johnson is an assistant professor of philosophy at Claremont McKenna College. Before joining Claremont McKenna, she was a Bursoff faculty fellow at NYU, affiliated with the Center for Mind, Brain, and Consciousness. She works primarily in philosophy of psychology, philosophy of cognitive science, philosophy of science, and philosophy of technology. Her projects explore the nature and structure of social bias as it occurs in computational systems, including the visual, perceptual system, socio-cognitive systems, scientific inference, and predictive models and machine learning programs. Raid Ghani is a distinguished career professor in the machine learning department and the Heinz College of Public Policy at Carnegie Mellon University. Raid is a reformed computer scientist and a wannabe social science scientist, but most, mostly just wants to increase the use of large scale AI machine learning data science in collaboratively solving large public policies and social challenges in a fair and equitable manner. Raid works with the government and nonprofits across policy areas, including health, criminal justice, education, public safety, economic development, and urban infrastructure. Raid is also passionate about teaching and practical data and science and started the Data Science for Social Good in Fellowship. Tracy Mears is the Walton Hale Hamilton Professor and a founding director of the Justice Collaborative at Yale Law School. Before, bringing the before joining the faculty at Yale, she was a professor at the University of Chicago Law School from 1995 to 2007, serving as Max Pam Professor and Director of the Center for Studies in Criminal Justice. She was the first African-American woman to be granted tenure at both law schools. Professor Mears is a nationally recognized expert on policing in urban communities. Her research focuses on understanding how members of the public think about their relationships with legal authorities such as police, prosecutors, and judges. Tina Eliassi-Rad is an associate professor of computer science at Northeastern University in Boston, Massachusetts. She is also a core faculty member at Northeastern University's 
Network Science Institute. Prior to joining Northeastern, Tina was an associate professor of computer science at Rutgers University. And before that, she was a member of the technical staff and principal investigator at Lawrence Livermore, Livermore National Laboratory. Tina earned her PhD in computer science at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Her research is rooted in data mining and machine learning and spans theory, algorithms, and applications of big data from networked representations of physical and social phenomena. She's had over 100 peer review publications, including a few best papers and best paper runner-up awards, and has given over 200 invited talks and 14 tutorials. So with all that, I'm handing it over now to Brandon Fiddleson, who will get discussion underway. Thanks, Jerry. I just want to start by saying thanks to both Ed and Jerry and to the Helix Center. It's always a pleasure to do these roundtables. I hope we can get back to doing them in person in New York City uh, next year. And I want to welcome everybody both on the webinar here and also on YouTube uh, in the live stream. Uh, I want to remind people that we, you can start putting questions into the Q&A tab in Zoom if you're on Zoom, or uh, you can write in some comments and questions in the live stream on on YouTube, and those are going to be compiled throughout the course of, for the first part of the, the, the roundtable. And then after we get done with this first part, which I'll say a little bit more in a second, we're going to have a Q&A at the end. Um, so feel free to start entering questions and comments as you have them. All right, so the plan, rough plan for today, such as it is, is roughly three parts, about 30 minutes each, uh, where I'm going to ask the panel about First, problems and pitfalls pertaining to the current use of AI technology and some of the, some of the moral problems that it currently faces in its applications now. And then we'll move on to um, potential solutions to some of those problems. And finally, I wanna end on an up note. I wanna end on a positive note here if we can uh, to say something about how we might harness these powerful technologies for good, for morally good outcomes in the future. All right, without further ado, starting with pitfalls and problems, um, I'm gonna start, I'm gonna ask uh, Tracy to go ahead and, and tell us some of her thoughts uh, about pitfalls and problems that she's seen and in, in, in her, her work she's addressing. Tracy? Good afternoon, everybody. Um, as I was listening to the bios of my co-panelists, I thought, wow, one of these things is not like the other, and that would be me. Uh, most of my work has focused on thinking about problems in the criminal legal system, although lately um, this, my center, the Justice Collaboratory, has branched out to think about um, problems of social media governance, which one might think is more directly related to what we're doing, but um, in the spirit of getting as many things on the table as possible, and at the beginning, especially in terms of articulating problems, I guess I would say when I think about um, AI, big data, uh, you know, machine learning and automation um, in the context of criminal legal processing, uh, we're faced with some serious issues about the difference between what we think about the fairness of how humans uh, make decisions about outcomes, especially penal outcomes for individuals and how we think about machines doing this. There are many people who think that machines engaging in these processes make it fairer because they think um, that 
machines themselves aren't impacted by bias. That may or may not be true. It depends on, you know, how you think about uh, how machines learn. Um, but certainly um, the crudest form of how this works ultimately or initially depends on how uh, the machines are programmed. I'm not saying anything that anyone doesn't know already about uh, thinking about risk assessments and who is denied bail and the extent to which one can make those algorithms fair. Um, just one point on that, and then I'll say something about social media. Um, one point is to say, um, to the extent that people point to all of those problems with machine lear learning, again, focused on you know, the issues inherent in having a human uh, program uh, these machines, um, I think folks too often forget, of course, that the human beings making these decisions, um, which would be the alternative, it's always compared to what, um, of course, have algorithms in their head. Um, and they always do. It's, it's always a, when I'm at conferences uh, like this, not this, but conferences discussing bail reform and risk assessment, I will always say, well, what about the algorithm in the judge's head? Because um, the, the critic um, always seems to posit the human alternative as better. Um, you know, it might be that they both just, to use my kids' terms, suck. And so the question is, which sucks the least um, and how we think about which sucks the least, which gets to my second point around um, social media governance. One way in which humans may suck less is the, uh, is the ways in which we uh, can be forced in a sense to explain what we do. Um, there's ways in which machines and algorithms in particular are especially inscrutable um, even if we can make them transparent, they're still inscrutable in all the ways in which humans just have trouble at some level with the capacity making the assessments, even if I can explain to you in words what the, what the algorithm is doing. And so in my social media work, and then I'll end with this because Brandon said I wasn't supposed to talk much more than um, about five minutes, so it's table setting. Um, one of the things we've tried to do at the collaboratory and the work on social media governance is to try to apply learnings from the social psychology of procedural justice and legitimacy in the real world, mostly in the criminal legal system context, to how uh, platforms for online interaction manage problems, disputes, content moderation, and so on. Um, and uh, we've been relatively successful working with a number of platforms to have them understand how they can use their data science to infuse that science with these ideas that um, procedural justice um, uh, points to. Um, most, I'll, I'll just say one more thing and, and we'll wait for the, uh, you know, the next session, but the key thing to understand about how procedural justice informs this is that it focuses much more on process then it focuses on outcome. So to the extent that when people are trying to make these um, outcomes fair through machine learning, the procedural justice approach would say, don't worry about the outcome as much, focus on the process by which you reach those outcomes. And then the, the key would be, is there a way in which we can have AI focus on these um, processes in ways that are transparent and sit transparent and salient to humans.
Thanks so much, Tracy. Um, I think a natural, this is a natural segue into asking Gabby to speak because Gabby's research it really is about the similarities and differences uh, between uh, biases that occur in human judgment and, and um, automatic biases, if you will. So, so Gabby, take it away. Great, thanks, Brandon. Yeah, and thanks for the great intro, Tracy. Um, so as Brandon said, I'm interested in cases of bias as they manifest both for human decision makers and for artificial decision makers. Um, so insofar as I'm highlighting various pitfalls and problems now, I guess my hobby horse is the biases that manifest in these decision-making procedures. And more so than with the human decision-making procedures, I think the issue is really bias under the guise of neutrality or scientific objectivity. And so I think every computer scientist is taught this motto of garbage in, garbage out. The computer decision maker is only ever as good as the data going into it. And so I try to focus my area um, of research on two different focal points. One is on the data going into the decision-making procedure and how various systematic patterns of oppression could be encoded in that data. Um, but the other decision or focal point for me is on the decision points of the algorithmic designer. And I think both allow opportunities for bias to creep into what seem like objective or impartial decision-making um, patterns. Um, so I think that Uncovering the theory behind the data is something that philosophers of science have been worried about for a long time and that um, various methodologies that are apparent in philosophy of science could be useful in the domain of machine learning algorithms. And so part of what I'm trying to do is to bring a better theory to understanding both the patterns that are encoded in the data, but also the theory of how we take objective scientific inference to occur more generally which is, of course, what we're trying to model in the case of algorithmic decision-making. Um, so just how human values get encoded in basically every single step of that procedure um, or that model um, is something that I think is at the fore of those concerned with ethical AI. Um, I also think, as Tracy said, another issue is the lack of transparency. Um, so we have a lack of transparency on two fronts. One is that uh, machine learning programs are proprietary, as we all know. And so because they're uh, commercial and um, because they're commercial programs, it seems like they are not going to be open to public scrutiny. And even if they were, the data that they're operating on uh, would also cause issues of privacy concerns. Um, so that they're proprietary is one issue. Um, but the second one, and I think this is the one that Tracy was intimating, is that they likely manifest what we call black box algorithms. That is, even if we could, as it were, peer under the hood and take a closer look, it's not obvious that even a good computer scientist or philosopher um, would be able to understand exactly how the program is operating. So the lack of transparency on those two fronts, I think, makes and compounds these issues of bias. Um, and then the third thing that I'll just say uh, as a, a problem or pitfall is just the speed and ubiqui ubiquity with which um, artificial intelligence and machine learning technology has proliferated. Uh, way further than um, we anticipated at the rate that it has. And so it has been allowed to grow basically um, unchecked and unfettered uh, throughout many aspects of uh, human lives. And so I think that the lack of accountability or mechanisms uh, for ethical 
responsibility is a big issue for our current technology industry. And so one of the major pitfalls that those of us interested in ethical AI need to approach and discuss. Thanks, Gabby. That, that was great. Uh, so having heard from the, the legal and the philosophical sides of this, um, I'm going to turn now to sort of the more practical, the more, more, more of the practitioner side. Um, so Raid, um, maybe you could share some of your thoughts from the more practical side, someone sort of on the ground using the tools, doing the stuff. Um, yeah, so I, mean, I think bef before we sort of, you know, before at least we start talking about sort of all the horrible things, you know, I, I think the reason we're having this conversation, I'm assuming, is because we think there is some good that can be done, right? That, that we have a lot of issues in this world and humans have been doing, trying to fix these issues for a very long time, but they've created these issues, right? It didn't, it didn't just happen. And, and so I think that if the premise is there is some potential in using computers and data and evidence to improve policies. Um, and, and there have been a lot of evidence for that, right? Like we've done a lot of good things that, that these are the risks that we're talking about. And these risks are only worth talking about because there is that potential for good. Otherwise it'd be very easy. Let's just stop, not do any of these things. Um, and, and I think th that comparison to sort of Tracy's point is, you know, it has to always be compared to what, right? It, it's not compared to the perfection that we all desire, but compared to what humans do today. Um, and I think that's a point that I think we need to keep repeating, which is why I'm repeating it, because it gets lost in practice very often, where the critics, you know, if you look at any criticism of these types of tools, it's often, you know, the, these machines, they, they are racist and, and they don't justify what they do. And you can replace the machines with humans and you, it would be the same, same paragraph. Uh, so, so I think, but in my mind, the bigger, the, the, so given that the risks are pretty much the same as they have been with humans all this time, any human decisions that are made have had these issues. To me, the, the incremental risk that comes up is partially what sort of Gabrielle talked about of how fast these tools are, are, are spreading, but then also, unfortunately, the consistency in these tools, right? The, the, with humans, the hope is that, you know, yeah, judges are, a lot of them are racist, but, and they all make sort of horrible decisions generally, but there's variance and each individual decisions combined, you know, it results in overall racism. We've seen that but every single decision may not be racist. But, but if these systems, let's say for criminal justice or allocating human services or health services, if there are three such systems in the world that are being used, that variance goes away. And if these three systems are bad, then there is no hope for us to recover from that. So I think that's for me, there's an incremental risk of, apart from what everything we've talked about that, that makes it worth really focusing on um, and thinking through. Um, second thing is again, what, what again, both Gabrielle and, and um, Tracy mentioned was there is sort of this fake uh, sense of trust. It's, oh, because it's based on data, it must be right, right? And, and, and yes, you know, the garbage in, garbage out, garbage out, but not garbage in doesn't mean not garbage out, right? You can put a lot of good data in, um, but the system can still result in horrible um, outputs but more importantly, I think at least the work I do is less on autonomous decision-making of any sort. It's assisting humans in making better decisions. So you could have a perfectly fair AI system resulting in horrible outcomes because the human that takes the, that those recommendations does horrible things or vice versa, a horribly biased AI system given to a human who understands how it works and can use it 
to create more equitable outcomes. And so, so I think that, that there is kind of, you know, this fake trust in, 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 in data where data is never objective. Um, there is no such thing as, you know, good data. Uh, it's whatever, you know, sensors we use to collect that, that information and how we use it. Um, and the other risk I think is to connect to that is often people may use these systems as an excuse to do what they would have done anyway. Uh, and now it gives them another, you know, evidence that see, uh, I, I, this is what the computer told me to do. And there have been many cases, again, in, in the criminal justice system of, of you know, uh, judges sort of claiming, well, I, I didn't make this decision, the computer told me to do that. Well, then why do you, why do we have you? Uh, why not just have the computer take over? Uh, so I think those are kind of some initial thoughts and you know, can go into those um, later more. Fantastic. Um, that brings us to our uh, final panelist, uh, Atina, who I know has thought a lot about uh, how humans interact with systems, especially when they serve as assistants, and also on uh, how to educate people so they become more technically literate. Um, Tina, you wanna take it? Yes, thank you very much. And uh, one update to my bio, I was promoted to full professor in July, even though it sounds like 100 years ago now. But uh, thank you, thank you. Um, so from my perspective, I teach a class called um, Algorithms That Affect Lives for freshmen, for incoming freshmen. And I don't require any math or programming. And my whole goal for them is, should we do this? So this goes back to what Rahid was saying. Just because we have the technology and somebody will pay for it, should we do it? As citizens of this country, should we deploy these algorithms for X, Y, Z just because we can do it and somebody's willing to pay for it? Maybe not, right? So we should really think about that as one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is what Rahit touched in is that at least from the computer science perspective, there's this notion that data comes from gods. And when you talk to, for example, physicists or more natural scientists, no, there's a distribution, right? And so which part of this distribution did you actually see, right? Um, it would be good, for example, to actually say, you know what, this algorithm only works on white men who are between 25 and 35. But computer scientists typically are not that honest. We're all about, it's a master algorithm. Right? My algorithm is the best algorithm on the planet, at least for five minutes until the next paper is published right? and knocks it down. So these are some of the things that um, both in terms of basically putting doubt into the human in terms of that this algorithm is fabulous and also making them think that there are certain scenarios in which the algorithm is really being treated as an expert witness right? It, it's as if it's an expert witness, but it's not really being treated like an expert witness, right? Where like you can actually like audit the algorithm and ask it different questions. It seems like it's a one-way street from the algorithm saying, you know, I think Tina is going to default on this loan, right? And not being able to ask, well, why do you think Tina is going to default on this loan, right? What if Tina was a white male, right? And had the royal flush of hands, would Tina still default on their loan, right? What if Tina's zip code was not so on and so forth, right? So there's some of these aspects of it, but I think in general, just thinking about just because we can do it and somebody is willing to pay for it, should we do it? Is it good for our society, right? So one of the aspects is automation, for example, and there is an element in terms of AI and ethics where robots in factories are taking away jobs. Maybe 
you know, you can say, oh, that's productivity growth and that's a good thing. But then on the other hand, what are you going to do with all these people who are unemployed? Do we not care about them? Or for example, should we tax the companies who bring in robots into the factories and use that money to re-educate our population, right? And so there's some of these kinds of things that um, I've been teaching the freshmen and they are amazing. They are amazing. And, you know, so I'm hopeful for the future um, because they ask the right questions. Um, and on that, I'll stop. Well, that's great because that, see, I wanted this to be an increasing <laughs> amount of optimism. So I like the trend and I'm just going to reverse the order. So Tina, keep going. You're on a roll here. Solutions, <laughs> maybe. What are some ideas for how to solve or how to address some of the extant problems? I think you're already addressing some of that, but maybe you could just take the next segment and then we'll just go in reverse order. Sure. All right, go yeah. for it. I think some of it is a citizenry that actually knows what's happening. Like, for example, a lot of my students ask, well, is there any way for me to figure out how much Google knows about me, right? Then perhaps I can make an informed decision as to whether I want to use all the Google products whether I want to allow Google in my life. Or for example, many of them don't know about the privacy law that was passed in California, where you can go to these tech companies and ask them about your data. Now, of course, you can pass laws, but they may not have teeth, right? So there's that as, as well. But there's also aspect of um, just having algorithms have labels on them, the same way prescription drugs have labels on them, right? Uh, because these algorithms adversely affect different populations. So I need to know the risks and benefits and who the algorithm was for and was the algorithm audited and can I audit it? What are the privacy risks and, and rights? So my colleague, um, uh, Patricia Williams, always says, what the hell does consent mean here? When I consent to Apple to use their music, their iTunes, when am I consenting to exactly right? So there's this kind of stuff that we need to unpack for our population so that they know what they're getting themselves into. I think that's one of the things that we don't know. And we can do that, right? We do have the tools to do that. And lastly, um, I think this was something that was mentioned before, which is you uh, can't just leave the algorithm design to white men, because then they just think about like other white men. So you really need representatives from other slices of the population to be in the room to have this what's called human valued or human centered design to think about well how would this operate on you know somebody like me right um so those are some of the solutions and we can do them it's just that you know why should i do it if somebody's already paying me a lot of money to just tell them you know tina's bad and brandon's good that's easier for me right what about, can I ask, uh, but what about this issue where there's some value in a particular program that you're invited to use and it's so sexy and exciting and, and, or, and or useful and it's, it's cheap to start up with and then the implications and the, and the, you know, the acceptance that you're asked to grant, it's uh, a lot of people don't take the time where they sort of buy into it before they really evaluate all the risk they're taking. What can we do about that? Is there something? Can be done about yeah, so I think that actually gets to a very good question. And that gets into a bigger question of what is the business model of these companies? You know, Google is an advertising company, whether you want it or not, it is an advertising company. Should we change the, uh, the business model of them where you are willing to pay $5 a month 
right? Uh, where you pay them $5 a month and they won't sell your data and they will stop being an advertising company. Now, when I taught the same class in the spring, my students were like, I am not willing to pay $5 a month. Like I'm willing to pay $20 for a burrito, but I'm not willing to pay $5 a month. Now, this semester, I have students who are like, no, I'm willing to pay $5 a month to Google so that like they don't sell my data and so on and so forth. Now, there's a bigger problem in that it's not just Google that uses your data, right? Your credit card company is selling your data, right? I'm sure you've heard these stories about like your friend may have moved from the West Coast to the East Coast and uh, Amazon knows where they have moved before you tell your parents. It's because there are all these data brokerage, right? Um, that collect and sell data. So it's not just that you can like stop gap at one point, right? And this is also why you need basically a national um, uh, set of rules and regulations with teeth again. Like for example, FDA still has teeth. I think it's because our country is so litigious. Like people have to get sued. This goes back to, I think it was uh, Gabby that mentioned in terms of uh, having somebody um, who you say it's Tina's fault, right? I can put up a software out there and bring half the country down. I won't get sued. Like I am not like, right. I am not liable, right. Microsoft is not liable for all the bugs that are out there, right. In their Microsoft software. So there's some of that going on here as well, but you ask a very good question and that touches on changing the business model. Right. Awesome. Uh, I'm going to reverse order here. Uh, Raid, you want to jump in on, possible solutions or, or ways of addressing some of the current pitfalls? Regulation. <laughs> I guess that's the, that, that's the easy answer, right? Connecting with what Tina is saying, yes, we can change the business model. Yes, we can educate consumers. Uh, you know, it takes, it, it, it's, it takes time and, and it may not happen, but I think, as you said, FDA, FTC, CFPB, uh, FEC, you know, pick your favorite uh, regulatory agency. And I think and that's the solution, except they're not ready yet. They, they don't know how to do it. They're not trained. They don't have the, the expertise. Um, and GAO, for example, right, like a couple of weeks ago, shockingly, you know, this country's GAO had a, had a two-day event on how do we audit and govern AI systems. Um, and it was actually pretty reasonable. Uh, so, so I think, I think that's, that's one path. That's, I don't think it's the only path. Um, I think, the, the, some of the things that I'm working on and sort of I think are, are, are worth pushing is 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 coming at it from both angles from what, what Tracy talked about procedural um, but but also outcome focus right I mean I think neither of them are enough um, procedural is is today it's very hard to vet, to audit procedural uh, things right it's just so complicated outcomes are a little bit easier to audit so, so that's a good starting point but that's not a long term you know we need we need both um, and the reason I say outcomes instead of procedural is at least in the AI world you know a lot of the focus in this area has been on fair algorithms or whatever that means but that's sort of this little tiny box in the middle and then there's all this stuff that happens before it and all the stuff that happens after it and if we just make those better the world doesn't change um, for example you know if you sort of have a, again a let's say a, a system to recommend who should be provided, you know, prioritized for COVID testing or vaccines someday uh, in the future. Well, you could have a fair system, but then the outreach to do those vaccinations or testing is happening in English, then it doesn't matter how fair your, your algorithm is, the system isn't fair. 
and 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 measuring outcomes there is really helpful, right? To, to kind of audit those things. The second thing is, I think today again, you can have perfect data, but there's still you know these systems optimize what the people building those systems op tell them to optimize for. It's not as this sort of magical truth that they build, um, and we don't we don't really teach those system developers to think about what to optimize for. You know, it's like, oh, it's, the best system is the one that best replicates the past. Well, that's a horrible way of, of building these systems. And, and that's what accuracy often translates to, which is efficiency. It's like, the more correct you are, the more efficient you are, but that's not the framing we talk about in the policy world. There are trade-offs and, and equity and effectiveness and efficiency. So I think part of it is both training the people developing these systems into these notions of there is no objective accuracy. It's not a trade-off. It's your performance measure has to include all of those things as opposed to just efficiency. Um, I think the other thing is that the point is a lot of times sort of these systems are, make, are, are forcing us to make some of these, um, as Tina was saying, these human societal policy values explicit. You know, before, you know, they were all implied and these systems, these decisions were made inside people's heads or in political speeches or, you know, and, and now if I have to build a system, I have to put these values as numbers into an algorithm. And that's uncomfortable and painful. And again, we're not trained to have those discussions, especially not with the people who are being affected by these types of systems, right? So it's not just, I'd say human-centered is useful, but also culturally centered of the culture that you're trying to build it for. Um, um, and yeah, so I think, I think kind of thinking through all these things, but I think in, in, in terms of moving forward, right, I think we have to expand the existing regulatory environment in order to deal with, with these types of things. It's not, and, and rather than having be kind of AI focused, they need to be kind of focused on the area they're regulating, right? So it's FTC and again, uh, FDA and CFPB and, you know, all of those that has to kind of, rather than an AI regulatory body, um, I think we have to kind of create trainings for them and tools and processes. And um, other thing is, I think we don't today have, so that's one. The second thing is we need the same type of things for policymakers. Like right now, we don't have any tools and trainings and guidelines for them to take all the, the systems being produced because for them, the answer is either, this is all magic, I'm just gonna use it because it solves a problem or shit, this is scary. I read this paper that says they're all biased. So I shouldn't use any of this because again, humans are so wonderful in what they do today. Right. Um, and they also don't have any way of sort of procuring these types of systems that are, that are, you know, so we have to kind of have procurements, procurement policies, training policy, and then trainings for the people who are building these systems to, to be able to have these conversations, have these discussions and, 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 and you know, build these things that, that actually get to what we care about. Thanks a lot, Raid. Um, Gabby, what, what are you, what's your take? So, I'm what's been so, so I will, yeah, redirect us away from the practical and applied back to the theoretical <laughs> as a philosopher. Um, so I just completely second everything that Raid and Tina said. I think um, regulation and education are the way to go as far as applied um, uh, safeguards. Um, but another thing that I think we need to do is to uh, redirect theoretical attention toward what sorts of aims we should be having. And one of the things that I focus on in my own work to just drill down for a second is getting away from this idea of objectivity as an ideal. So not only is objectivity something that we are incapable of achieving in a robust sense, 
Um, but it's something that I think we shouldn't even be aiming for. And so here, maybe I'll say some things that are controversial from a certain sort of perspective, but I just want to be clear about what I'm saying. When I'm using the term bias, I don't mean it in any normatively laden sense. So I want to be normatively agnostic about whether or not a bias is problematic, either because it doesn't get us onto truth or it doesn't get us onto justification or because we think it's doing something morally problematic. So for me, biases can be ethically good or bad, epistemologically good or bad. And so one of the things that we recognize from coming at both human decision-making and algorithmic decision-making from a naturalized perspective, that is looking at how human beings actually make decisions, is that we need bias. And this is something that any computer scientist is going to say and then immediately be confronted with like skeptical eyes. Uh, but it's something that we know just about how humans operate in the world. Uh, so as philosophers of science, we often focus on what's called the problem of underdetermination. That is, any data set that you're given will vastly underdetermine the possible hypotheses that you could come up with in light of that data. And I think if you're someone who favors objectivity or impartiality overall, you'll notice that there's a problem here. If we treated all of those many infinitely, indefinitely many hypotheses equally, we would just be crippled with indecision. And so we wouldn't be able to make any decisions whatsoever. And so this is just a proof of concept that objectivity in a strict sense is impossible. And so for, from one perspective, if odd implies can, uh, we shouldn't even be aiming for it in that respect. But I think a more important one, and again, this comes out of like a naturalized viewpoint, that is how humans and um, algorithmic decision making occurs, is that bias actually helps us. We know more, not less, when we have bias. And so one of the things that I think is coming out of these more practical discussions about, for example, so-called colorblind approaches or uh, conceptions of fairness that involve not having a marker for socially uh, marginalized demographics and the actual features that you encode in your algorithm. What all of those discussions are proving time and time again is that we're not able to erase the markers of systemic injustice um, by stripping away features of our data. Those patterns are so deeply ingrained in our environment that any program that we have that's intended to replicate or find consistencies in that data will necessarily imbibe those same biases. Just like the human visual perceptual system encodes various biases like light comes from above. It's just how we as finite knowers come to decisions on the basis of data. Um, so I think that this uh, redirection away from uh, impartiality in this robust sense will help us a lot. It's almost like if we uh, thought of our algorithms as coming in at the beginning of the game, then a level playing field would make sense. But instead, we're coming in midway through a race for which uh, some members of marginalized demographics have been working uphill throughout most of the race. And then we're saying, okay, from here on out, we're gonna expect plateaus. And so we expect a level playing field. It's like midway through the race is not the time to adopt impartiality. And so taking into consideration the sorts of differences that have occurred up to this point will only help us better create uh, what I think of as a move away from equality in general to equity, that is, what sorts of features or implementations do we have to adopt in order to give us a more playing field holistically? Thanks, Gabby. That really, that really resonated with some of the stuff Raid was saying, because uh, computer scientists will, of course, tell us that not only do we need bias if we want to learn, we need variance, too. And that speaks to Raid's point about how if you eliminate too much variance, you're not going to be able to learn or do anything either or make decisions. So you need both bias and variation. And those are definitely challenges given the, given the current regime. 
of a technology. Uh, that brings us finally to, to, back to Tracy, uh, uh, the batting cleanup here on this topic. Tracy? Yeah, batting cleanup. Um, so I actually wrote down a few notes of things I wanted to say after listening to Tina and Raid. Um, and then Gabby went in kind of a different direction. And so when you're batting cleanup, it's like, okay, how, how am I going to do this? So I think the way I'm going to do it is by making four points, which are not necessarily like building on one another. So you should be thinking of them as responding to different parts of the conversation um, that we've heard so far. And, um, you know, hopefully the connections will be self-evident and it will be productive. So um, point number one, I, I just want to note that when Kina was talking about Google and her students, she said um, something about paying Google for your data. Think about that, just that phrase. Or pay somebody for your data. The point was is that you had to go to somebody else for your stuff. So um, to a lawyer, that might sound strange that you would go to someone else for your stuff and actually even have to pay them um, for your stuff. Because when you think about what property law is, by definition, it's yours and you are entitled to it. Um, and why would you pay somebody for something that was already yours unless you had relinquished it in some other kind of, of transaction? That um, just calls to mind um, a relatively recent Supreme Court opinion, which some of you might be used to, Carpenter, and might be aware of Carpenter, in which Justice Gorsuch tries to solve some of the problems around cell site location data if you've read this opinion, you know that the justices were all over the place um, in it. But um, one of the things that Justice Gorsuch tried to do was to, um, you know, try to rely on these older concepts of property to solve these problems. I mentioned this because I do want to say something about regulation in a second. So, you know, just that point for a little bit of, of level setting. So then that does bring up the question of, if, if we think there are all these problems that might be solved by regulation, what should regulation look like? Typically, when we're thinking about regulation, um, you know, for most people, uh, ordinary folks, intuitively, you know, regulation is about coming up with a set of rules that you want other people to obey, which means that you have to have a theory about compliance and the one that's typically um, available to most people is an idea that people will comply with rules or the law because they fear the consequences of failing to do so. So then, you know, your regulatory regime would be very, would be organized around punishment um, and would be organized around identifying wrongdoers, you know, going back to something Tina said, trying to figure out blameworthiness in, in some sense, um, borrowing on concepts from uh, criminal law, but I, I think, or at least I hope that the conversation so far has revealed all the ways in which thinking about that kind of regulatory structure doesn't work very well um, for this space. That doesn't mean that it doesn't do something or even some things <laughs> to address problems, problems that might just be about identification of what's fair and unfair. But in the normal regulatory context, we're trying to think about changing behavior wholesale in some way that is good, right? Um, and 
you know, usually criminal law approaches and, and punishment regimes don't really help us get there. Um, so, you know, you might be thinking again about the alphabet soup of um, administrative type interventions, which often have to do with getting entities to document a bunch of stuff. Like you can imagine, for example, I think Andrew Selbst, who's a law professor at um, UCLA, has made arguments about requiring these companies to do a version of an environmental impact statement, you know, just sort of becoming much more self-aware about the ways in which their products, algorithms, and so on have um, particularly bad uh, consequences for certain groups, right? Um, but that brings up the question then when we're talking about regulation, um, about what, what authorities are we even talking about in this context, right? Um, so again, when we talk about regulation, at least in this country, um, we typically think about what the state is doing vis-a-vis -vis some other actor, whether it's an individual actor or an entity. Um, you can also imagine uh, regulation being, um, a, that concept being a little bit more um, capacious, like imagining if the, 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 from a governmental perspective, it would look like self-regulation, which a lot of people don't like, but it might be, depending on the, the regulatory regime we adopt, something like requiring these entities to have certain kinds of rules for themselves that could then be audited in certain ways, but outside of a punishment regime. So a kind of uh, connect, uh, a combination of rules towards moral suasion because it won't necessarily result in punishment. Hopefully that wasn't too confusing. Um, and I can say more as, as we talk about it. But again, um, I'm motivated by the work that we've done in the social media context. So you know, what have we done there? Um, we have acknowledged the fact that in a lot of ways, um, that space is unregulated in the typical sense, right? Um, that, that they're not subject to the usual kinds of administrative rules by the alphabet soup of administrative agencies. For good or ill, people have lots of views about whether the FCC should be doing more, so on. Um, but take that as a given, you can actually <laughs> um, think about having these entities impose their own regulatory regimes in ways that are transparent to users, um, consumers, whatever you want to call the people who are interacting in, in that context. And you can also look to see what features you would want that regulation to have. And so here's where I'm going to say a little bit more about, you know, my favorite regulatory approach that um, depends on the social psychology of, of procedural justice. But the goal of that work is to, to um, encourage people in a space to voluntarily um, comply with the rules that they set out, right? Um, now, this, th this view, this approach actually works in the real world too. In fact, it was developed <laughs> for the real world. It's a recognition of the fact that despite the fact that most people um, seem to, when they think about changing behavior, move immediately to crime-based deterrence punishment regimes, the reality is most people do not obey the law and rules because they fear the consequences of failing to do so. Most people obey the law and our rules because they agree with them, period. 
Um, but the regulatory problem is what you do in a context in which someone doesn't agree with the rule or they think it's silly or inefficient or something. That's where the social psychology of procedural justice comes in. And we know um, that people are more likely to conclude that authorities slash rules are fair in um, when four conditions uh, obtain first, when people have an opportunity in a particular interaction to tell their side of the story, um, or if we're talking about articulation of rules, um, participate in the, the creation of those rules. Um, and that's true even if that input doesn't have any particular impact um, on an outcome that's, you know, subject to those rules. And there are limits to that, but, you know, that's, um, it's about having voice. That's what we call it. Second, people care a lot about being treated with dignity and respect and being listened to. So, you know, the conversations that we were talking about before about transparency and the like have to do, I think, with these dignity concerns. Third, uh, people care a lot about being able to ascertain whether decisions are fair. This gets to Gabby's point, I think, about objectivity. Um, you know, I think what's interesting, though, about that is, of course, people never know what is, in fact, objective. They're just looking for indicia of ob objectivity. So they look for things they think are neutral. Um, they look for factuality. They look for explanations. That's where the explanation piece come in comes in. When you are explained, um, when an outcome is explained to you, you are more likely to think that it is neutral and without bias, even if that's not true. And then fourth, people care a lot about being able to uh, trust the motives of a decision maker. So this is obviously a huge problem for machines. Um, how are you going to uh, assess the motives um, of the machine or art artificial intelligence? You're going to go immediately to the programmer, to the owner of the machine, to the um, you know, to the sponsor of, of the project that depends on these things to, to ascertain those things. We know finally when all of those things happen um, and people are able to, to, um, to key in on those factors, we know that, that folks um, are more likely to conclude that what, whatever experience they've had or the law or the rule um, is they're more likely to follow that rule they're more likely to engage with the promulgator of the rule and they're more likely to co cooperate with the promulgator of that rule. So um, all this to say, if there's the possibility, if we're talking about possible solutions, infusing these ideas into how we go about a regulatory structure, I think is really incredibly important. So if I may uh, follow up on something that Tracy said, so right now, uh, Google is providing a service and you are paying them with your data, right? Hence, they're in the advertising business. They're in the attention economy, right? Uh, Zainab Tufekki, who is a professor at U UNC Chapel Hill, says it's like you're never hardcore enough for YouTube. They want you on their site, right? And so part of a solution is to think about can we change the business model of these companies? One is, okay, well, let's think of Google as electricity, right? You pay for electricity, you pay them, they don't sell your data, right? You, because they need infrastructure and all that to be able for you to search the internet, right? The web, the World Wide Web. Now, there are actually three uh, um, 
approaches that people are talking about. One is the service model, right? Like electricity, like cable, et cetera, that you pay them monthly. The other one is what Paul Romer has been talking about. Paul Romer is a noted economist at NYU. He won uh, one of, he was one of the winners of the Nobel Prize in 2018, where he says, we will tax them. We will tax Google, right? If they make over some certain number, we will tax them of, of profits. And then we will, you know, use that then for good for our, for our society. And then there's uh, um, Jaron uh, Lanier and Glenn Weil. Um, Jaron Lanier is uh, one of the fathers of virtual uh, reality and Glenn Weil is an economist where the, no, 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 we'll keep the model as is, but Google will pay you for however much, you know, money they make off of your data. Right now, of course, you can have that game, right? Any of these systems can be gamed the same way, like, for example, with a cable, right? You could game the cable uh, uh, payments. But as part of a possible solution, and I saw in one of the Q&As, there was this thing about how people get hooked on the technology, um, is to think about, well, how, what is a better business model as well, right? So not just regulation, but what is a better business model uh, and they go hand in hand. So I just wanted to clarify that. It's not so much that you're paying Google to get your data. It's just that Google will agree to not sell your data um, and uh, for you paying them as a service. Um, and in fact, there are certain other um, companies like Hulu, for example, right? You pay them, you see less ads, right? That doesn't mean that they're not selling your data, by the way. Everybody's selling your data. So rest assured, at this point, everybody's selling your data, and you are just the data cloud as you walk by, right? But, but, um, but, but Tina, I mean, yes, everybody's selling your data, but certain industries have been better regulated, right? So, so the, the oldest industry selling data is all the consumer behavior, credit card. That industry is extremely regulated. They can only sell your data to market to you and for nothing else. I mean, it's a horrible, it's the most, well, one of the worst things you can do with it, but still there are these rules that, oh, you want to do product development? Oh, we can't sell you your data for that. So, and I think the data ownership world for the AI world is, is still so, well, it's not new, but it's just hasn't been, it's like FEC not knowing how to regulate things on the internet when they know how to regulate things on the, you know, on print and, and TV, the same. So if Google and Uber self-driving cars are training on pedestrians and taxpayer paid, you know, stop signs and, and whose data are they training on? So is the algorithm that they've built part owned by the people whose data they were using? You know, so I think that's where I would put the, the, the legal profession right now on, you know, like, what about data ownership uh, laws? Like, I think you need to catch up. So everybody's selling data, but I think there are variations of that data and, and there are better and worse models of consent. And every time we, our data gets used, do we get notified? Uh, are there presets that we can choose uh, right. as opposed to, you know, um, and I think we just haven't caught up with that. Yeah, so I would completely agree with that. And for example, in, in healthcare, right? Um, there are a lot of uh, rules and regulations in terms of, you know, you getting access to, let's say Tina's medical data. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, it is, it is the, uh, you know, wild, wild west in terms of uh, the data that you are trailing uh, is, or is trailing behind you on all the apps that you use that you believe is good utility, right? Um, so I am somebody that has like about 500 apps on my iPhone just to confuse them all. <laughs> if I could, if I could just, this is great. If I could just jump in, just uh, I'm seeing some connections here. So 
I think uh, uh, Tracy's remarks and also Tina's, there's, there's something that they have in common. If you change the incentive structure in such a way that the users feel like they have more say in how everything works and is regulated, uh, in a sense they have more power in the process, then that plays into that social, science, uh, social scientific, what we know about people in their group deliberations. Does that, does that make sense, Tracy? Yes, sorry. I had my phone muted because somebody was calling and I figured you didn't want to hear my phone ring. <laughs> oh, this is great. Uh, Gabby, you want to chime in if you like to? Yeah, uh, um, the two things I was going to add is just uh, insofar as we're attempting to theorize about various regulatory bodies that might transfer or not transfer well over to the algorithmic or machine learning domain, technology industry more generally. Um, one of the issues that came up in the discussions is just that the algorithms are proprietary. So one issue is the data on which they're operating, but again, the, the actual algorithmic design is proprietary as well. Um, and insofar as uh, we have regulatory bodies for proprietary recipes, as it were, like the FDA is already available. And so mm -hmm. that we could have some, I think the main thing is just that we have something external to the industry itself. And likewise, um, in scientific practice, we have institutional review boards. And it's a key function of those that they have individuals on the institutional review boards who are divorced from the actual scientific practice itself so that you just have an external eye looking in on how things are operating. And so all of this just speaks back to the importance of um, having a participatory voice in what's happening, uh, that the individuals who are uh, the subjects or victims, as it were, of the technology industry, um, that they could have a say in how things are being regulated. And so then this just shifts us back to the importance of not just regulation, but also education. It's important that people understand exactly how the algorithms are operating, what their data is being used for, what it could be used for, how they're playing a role in everything in order for them to have an informed voice about how things get regulated. Well, yeah, Brandon, I think... Oh, sorry. If I may just ask a quick question. Didn't the EU pass certain regulations about the use of data and that uh, every time you go on a site, they ask you what data, what do you want, what you don't want? which is, of course, an annoyance because you just want to get the information and move on. But is that a model that is going to be useful or is a useless model? Well, I guess from my perspective, not without education, because as you said, you go and you say, okay, okay, follow me through, right? And it's horrible. I mean, if you look at the cookies, I mean, there are software that you can see how many people are tracking you online. And you're like, okay, perhaps I don't want to see how many people are tracking me online. So, and then actually that dovetails to a comment I was gonna say is that even if you decide, you know what, I'm not gonna be online, uh, try to live in America right now without credit cards. Or as soon as you go to the ATM and get cash, they know where you are, right? So you, maybe they don't know as much about you, but they know what, where you are. So, so there's some of that going on. On the flip side, I guess on a positive note here, is that, for example, if there are images of you up on the web, but nobody has ever tagged you, then they don't know that it's you, right? It's not that, it's basically like we're just giving them this data, right? Uh, and so they take it and they, you know, they use it to make a lot of money. And in fact, uh, as part of that, I think it was Tracy that brought up explanation. So supposedly on Facebook, actually, I know this for a fact, on Facebook, when you get something, you can say, why are you showing this to me? Why are you showing this ad to me? Or on Google and many other platforms. If you look at those explanations, the explanations are too um, general. 
right? Oh, I'm showing this because you're a woman between 20 and 50 whose primary residence is in the U.S., you know? And I think <laughs> that there's actually two aspects of it. One is explanation is hard. And two is they don't want to let you know how much they know about you because that's going to creep you out, right? So actually, this is one of the experiments. It's one of the assignments I give to my students. I'm like, okay, go and see the kind of ads you're getting and look at the explanations they're giving you and tell me, do you think that those explanations are good enough? And it's always too general, right? It's not specific enough in terms of why. And um, just one last thing about Google is even if you go to the Google, like private incognito, like you, you clear everything, you restart your machine, you are in the... Uh, uh, Chrome or Safari or, uh, or Mozilla's um, Firefox's uh, incognito or private mode, they're still tracking you. They know your location. Just search. And then you're going to get ads for, you know, uh, around the bistro around the corner. So, you know, a lot of this has to do with us educating the public. And I, by public, I mean everybody, right? Uh, and this is why for me, it's a freshman course. Like these kids come in and they're like, whoa. <laughs> so. Can I just real quick add, yeah, to um, some of these connections. So I really like Tracy's comment about how a critical aspect of like um, autonomy and self-governance is consent. And as Tina just pointed out, um, we should be thinking about certain algorithmic decision-making or machine learning products more generally as things like utilities. And so then when we're confronted with these sorts of solutions where what we get is just bombarded with terms and conditions that everyone scrolls to the bottom of and clicks accept, that's supposed to be a token of consent. But of course, if you think about it on the model of utilities, that is, we couldn't possibly opt out. We couldn't possibly read through all the terms and conditions. Then from a conceptualized standpoint where consent, you know, you can't give consent under duress or coercion, it seems like one of the elements that we're missing is not just that you need to be educated, but the point of contact where individuals consent to the use of these algorithms be more informed and robust as well. Amen to that. I, I had heard, so it, just as uh, speaking back to the FDA analogy, a couple of people mentioned that. I had heard, maybe Tina, you were telling me about this, that uh, there's some people are proposing that like drugs, you should treat algorithms like drugs and, and have a similar, some similar kinds of regulatory regimes. Do you want to maybe say something about how would that work? Yeah. So uh, when you go get a uh, prescription drug, right, uh, the, you, you get this long pamphlet that nobody reads, right? And then you get this like very short uh, label on the, uh, the, the bottle itself, right? And it would be good if we could do that for algorithms, right? Uh, and in terms of the long pamphlet, there have been recent movements on that. So um, there was a, a group by Margaret Mitchell and another one by Timnit uh, Gibru from Microsoft and Google and lots of other, other universities where they came up with model cards uh, for models where for a particular model, like a, a machine learning algorithm for, for the audience, um, you would say, you know, who created it? What was its, in, its uses? How, how was it trained? How was it evaluated? Does it do well on the entire population? What are some of the ethical issues? So it's like a long form birth certificate for the machine learning algorithm. And then the other one was um, uh, data sheets for data sets, 
where, you know, again, it's like a long form birth certificate for the data set. How was it collected? Who collected it? How is it being maintained? How was it cleaned? Right? Lots of other kinds of stuff. Now, if you look at those papers and you look at these long form birth certificates or these, tam uh, these pamphlets, um, they're a little bit too inside baseball. The same way for me, I'm not going to read the big pamphlet for the, for the prescription drug that I'm getting. So we, we also need to have some kind of a label that the general public will understand that perhaps I don't want to use this algorithm because it will have some adverse effects for me because then I will be trailing data and somebody is going to use it and say, well, Tina is not a good person to hire for this job, <laughs> right? Because of some data that they saw elsewhere that I did. So these kinds of labels are extremely important. And, and I think the analogy to prescription drugs for algorithms is just spot on. Um, I mean, I think I would, I would want to go further, right? And, and I'm not disagreeing with starting with, because FDA still has pretty macro uh, out, out, outputs, right? They'll say this drug is safe and this drug is not safe. Whereas I think that the question we're asking with these algorithms is not that they're overall safe in a, or not safe. It's they're bad for lots of subpopulations. Um, and and today, FDA doesn't do a very good job of, of, of regulating that piece. Um, you know, it has a laundry list of, oh, if you have these things, you should be careful. Like, well, yeah, but I don't, what about me? Uh, you know what things I have. Is this going to be useful for me? FDA doesn't do that. And I think same for me as in if I am, you know, if I'm allocating health resources or, or, or uh, making criminal justice decisions, I need sort of for my application, um, does this work, right? So one of the things we've developed over the last couple of years is sort of this thing we call the fairness tree, which sort of asks you, what are you using? What are you trying to do? What do you care about? Again, it's not, it's not at all for the sort of the, the, the consumer as the public, but consumers, people, policymakers, decision makers are using these tools. Um, it's sort of the input is, you know, what are you trying to do? For example, right? If you're, again, if you're making punitive decisions uh, or uh, interventions, then disparity in false positives is going to be much worse than disparity in false negatives. If you're trying to help people and give them additional services, the false negative disparities are much worse, right? And those are sort of concepts you can explain, but it's much easier. So same system used for two different things can have very different outcomes. Um, so part of it is really kind of being much more deliberate about, you know, for this type of problems, here are the issues for these types of problems and having audit tools and all those things so I agree that I think FDA is a is the closest we have, but I think we need to push much further in terms of um, of, of sort of auditing these types of tools and and, and putting out the, these things. The other thing is I think you know we we don't have the the this sort of the practitioner set you know sort of guidelines for people building these things. We're not a very mature field, right? Uh, we only as a field discovered there's a thing called ethics you know, a few years ago, right? And, and, and we should do something about it. You know, all this work on, uh, on machine learning people trying, you know, discovering the field of ethics. So I think we're just so new that we don't have reproducibility. We don't have sort of documentation guidelines and we just need all of those things. And if we had those, this conversation would be much easier because it would start from that and say, well, we need to make these tweaks uh, as opposed to, you know, we're, we call ourselves a science and we have no reproducibility guidelines. <laughs> uh, yeah, and actually we found ethics because we, we got bad publicity. 
Otherwise, right. we wouldn't have found epics. <laughs> we, and we right? still have, I mean, found mean, you know, we can spell it now. There you uh, go. So, so that's a start. Uh, but, but yeah, I think it's, it, it's, it's sort of embarrassing at some point, right? Like, no, 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 we're not all like that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if I could jump in, because, you know, at Northeastern, our ethics institute is one of the things we're really trying to do is be part of ethics education of techno technological people, people who work in the field, practitioners, also policymakers. And I think that's, so while, just to throw this in, while we're talking about education, I do agree that technological um, literacy is more, it's probably the most important thing of the general population, but ethical, uh, it's a little bit of thinking about ethics uh, for the people doing the stuff and using it. That's also probably a good idea too. Um, I'm just, th just to throw that in there. Um, Brandon, got, can I yeah. throw in one little thing too, you when you're talking about the general population, um, you know, one of the things that we've faced at Yale law school, which, you know, it's a pretty good school and we think that we get lots of really able students. Um, we've been focused not just on in, uh, educating people about technology, but basic numeracy. I mean, you know, the, the level of numeracy education in this country is really poor. Um, and, you know, I think that precedes even this question about how much you can understand technology, which of course, relates to the ethics, I also point out that all of us is, um, each one of us works in a different kind of school and there's very little relationship between those schools in terms of conversation, whether we're talking about schools of information, schools of journalism, schools of communication, you know, um, the computer science stuff, and then the regulatory people, law, not to mention um, business schools to get to Tina's point about business models. I mean, you really need to create an entirely entire new field to, to get this work done, honestly. Yeah, is and if there, I may, oh, go ahead, Ed. I just want to ask, there, seems, there is a difference between ethical and legal. So you were talking about um, FDA. So you, FDA approves a drug and then the company starts putting all sorts of ads one after the other and trying to have as many people on this drug as possible. Legally, they protect themselves by reading you a whole list of their side effects and they, including that you may die from it. But uh, so you can control it legally, but ethically, it's a much harder thing to define and control, isn't it? Yeah, I would agree with that. And Absolutely. And so I would say that speaks to the importance of ethical thinking, not just in the technical areas, but also in government and in the regulatory bodies. They should learn more ethics. I don't have anyone in particular in mind, but you can imagine who I might be talking about. <laughs> but like, for example, some of the things that, uh, again, I just want to come back to education, maybe because now I'm a professor, like it's all about education. Uh, you know, I haven't gone to the dark side, but this notion that like when I go and talk to people, I'm like, for example, we can tell who's your romantic partner on Facebook because not everybody says who their romantic partner is. And it's a very simple model, right? You're like a, a, the center of this flower. There are petals around you. This petal is high school. This petal is college. This petal is your book club, so on and so forth. People who are outside of these petals, who, who are friends with the people inside these petals, they're either your sibling or your romantic partner because you're introducing them to different facets of your life. Now, if you stop doing those introductions, it's a leading indicator that you will break up in two months. 
and we can start pushing you single bar ads and other kinds of things, right? I think most people will find that very intrusive, right? But people don't know, you know, we know a lot about you guys. You know, we could find that really easily, be up to a lot more like bad stuff, which we are not. So tread, tread softly. <laughs> well, okay, so it's about 3.42. I was thinking maybe between 15 and 20 more minutes before we get to Q&A possibly. So maybe, or we don't have to take that long, but maybe we could sort of turn towards the future since I'm an incorrigible optimist, um, sorry. Uh, maybe each of you could try to throw in something about how you think, what are some ways we might be able to turn this, turn this ship around, to, so to speak, and actually use it to leverage good moral outcomes and not be having to play catch up with all the pathology so much. Um, who wants to take that first? Gabby? Sure, I'll take it first. Um... So I just want to maybe bring it back to something that Raid said that I really liked, which is, well, now putting it in my own words, um, every algorithm is an artifact. It's like a tool that we use. And so we can decide whether we want to use that tool for good or for bad. And so as Raid was saying, um, in a context where we're distributing resources, we might decide that a certain decision procedure that increases false positives isn't as bad as in a case where we're predicting recidivism risk, say. One of the things that's common about these cases, though, and that I think really comes out of the influence and impact of um, computational procedures more generally, is just a sort of computational prowess that we haven't seen before and that will allow for a lot of, um, I think, positive impacts on the world. So going back to this issue of uh, garbage in, garbage out, um, so I always ask computer scientists, you know, you say that an algorithm is only as good as the data going in, garbage in, garbage out, but at the same time, it's supposed to be more objective than like human decision makers. And so how do we reconcile these two claims that seem to be intention? And they usually say something like, well, you know, we'll, we'll be able to get rid of the hangry judges. So like the judges who decide just before lunch and have harsher judgments, at least computers don't get, um, hungry and so they won't make uh, more angry decisions. Um, so there are some personal level biases uh, that I've studied in my own work and that I think will be ameliorated by the use of um, objective, more objective um, machine learning programs. But what that objectivity means isn't necessarily uh, robust, strict objectivity. Uh, rather, I think it comes out of just being able to notice and pick up on certain features of our world that when we march through it in this individualized, over-intellectualized fashion, where we're focusing on human decision-making, we think that we're better than we are. Um, and so when we redirect focus, so here's how I think about um, the advantage that machine learning programs have on humans. It's like, if you think of just a simple, well, I won't get into the details, but like a two-dimensional decision uh, procedure, uh, where we have two, just two features that we're making a decision on, and then we come to an inference on the basis of that. And now you get into like 100 dimensional feature space where machine learning programs are picking up on like countless features that they're collecting through data practice or collection practices that we're not even aware of. So think of like three dimensions, that's easy enough. Four dimensions, that's harder. Now think of like 100,000 dimensions folded in on itself, and you get something like a, a spiky ball just kind of existing there. And computers are more objective than humans in the sense that they're able to deal with very spiky balls. Whereas we humans, I think, are inclined towards smooth surfaces. We like for things to be easy. 
And because of their computational prowess, I think some of those spikes in that ball that pick out things like uh, injustice or patterns of oppression in the environment, that they're picking up on them, I think is good for us to redirect focus away from some of these questions about, I, I think the question of who's to blame is still an important one, but it redirects us away from what individual person has made a decision that is biased against a particular person to more so focus on the environment in which these algorithms are being used. And insofar as what's common in all of these applications of machine learning programs is that they're picking up on those patterns that are out there in the world. We're realists about those patterns. We're not denying that those patterns exist. Then the question just becomes, okay, how do we leverage their ability to pick up on those patterns better than we can to ameliorate some of the problematic patterns that we see in the environment. And so I think that's the main thing and that should be the focus of what we do with algorithms going forward. Right, great, yeah, as opposed to using that prowess to sell you more soap more effectively, which is basically what's happening now. Ray, do you wanna jump in on this? Sure, so I like, I like Abby's sort of description of those, these spiky balls, right? I think, I think that the, the part that's sort of extending that a little bit is, is what, what a lot of these algorithms are trying to do is they're given these, these spiky balls and then they're given some outcome. And, and they're saying, well, figure out the patterns of the spiky ball that lead to those outcomes. Now, the problem is those outcomes are not objective, right? Those outcomes, there's sort of two types of problems we use AI for generally, right? For, for prediction, machine learning, prediction things for. One is classification, right? Where some human knows what a thing is. It's just too slow for us humans to figure that out uh, fast and, and we're too slow for it. So is this an image of a person and all the, all the horrible you know, things we've heard about there? There, human biases in the outcome are the problem, right? The inputs the computer can adjust, but if the outcome is wrong, then the computer is by definition going to be wrong because it's replicating that. The, and so one example of that is some work we were talking about earlier, I've been doing with, you know, with police departments on identifying police officers who are going to do horrible things in the future, like shoot uh, people and unjustified use of force and all those different things. The, the key word that I just said was unjustified. Like who determines it was unjustified? Um, use of force happened, it got investigated and there, some objective internal affairs team decided justified, unjustified. Um, and you know, if you're a department that's a pretty horrible department, like a lot of large police departments are today, it's gonna be totally corrupt and you're gonna say everything is justified. And so the computer is just gonna take the spiky ball and, and as good as it is at identifying patterns, the outcome is not just, you know, perfectly justified. So that's, I think, one big thing is that, or even things like somebody's gonna graduate high school on time. That's not objective. It's what support structures were in place, what their backgrounds were, how they grew up. So you can't sort of say, here's an objective thing and let the computers figure out how to get to that objective outcome because there is no such thing as objective outcomes, right? We don't have counterfactuals. And um, so I'll give you another example of where we're trying to sort of, again, to, uh, to I think it was Gabby's point about equality and, and equity, right, in the beginning um, of, this was work we we're doing with Los Angeles City Attorney's Office on reducing misdemeanor recidivism through, through sort of social service interventions and diversion programs. And we sort of, they wanted to help in building a system that would help them get ready for people who might be, the police might be arresting and, 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 and booking so that when they're called to come in front of the judge, they have a case file ready with all the, the connections and the social service programs in place. And they didn't, they would have a couple of hours and that wasn't enough time. So 
we built the system and the first version of that system we found was about 80% efficient. Of all the 150 people they could, they could they had resources to prepare for, uh, the list we would give them would be about 80%, right? And the challenge was that that system was more right for white people than Hispanic people. Um, and and so, so playing that out, what that system does is helps both Hispanic and white people, but because Hispanic recidivism rate is higher than white, over time it results in both of the recidivism rates going down, but the disparities increasing. Um, that's the most efficient system, right? So we said, okay, here's option number two, which is focusing on equality. So we built a system, tune it so that it's equally right for both. Um, it's about 2% less efficient. And what does that do? Well, it reduces equally for both. So it preserves the status quo disparity. And so that's what you want, but here's option number two. Here's option number three, which is maybe another percent more expensive, less efficient, and it's better for Hispanic people than white. So not focused on, on equality, but what it results in is lowering the disparity and downstream, you know, a few years later, it, it gets to equity in, in recidivism rates. And now you have to sort of this, these three policy options, it's the menu. If you care about efficiency, you use option number one and you increase disparities. If you care about equality, you use option number two, it's 2% less, more expensive, and you get to equality, but still preserving status quo. And if you care about equity, definition of equity, you know, you get to that and there's another 1% expense, you know, uh, more expensive. And they chose, you know, number three, but I think that's kind of an example where we can use these types of tools to help humans make decisions that lead to equitable outcomes, but it requires policymakers to want that outcome. <laughs> and it requires people like us to provide them this menu that they can understand. And then all the math and everything else goes in the background, right? We can start to develop these algorithms and build these systems but reasoning at that level, um, I think there's a lot of hope of, of uh, many other examples like that. And some recent work that we did for these types of resource allocation problems, we found this sort of the general assumption, you often go to these talks on AI fairness, most people will start with, well, there's a trade-off between accuracy and fairness. And actually there is no empirical evidence that there is such a trade-off. It's just a thing we say. Uh, and so we actually found that we just did a paper under review, but we looked at five or six of these problems that we've worked on over the last couple of years. And we found that for certain classes of problems, we could, you know, pretty, um, with some explicitly focusing on equity and, and kind of dealing with that issue, we can actually reduce disparities, you know, equal uh, without losing any efficiency or accuracy, which I think, again, gives us a path forward so that we can start talking about these things as kind of you know, equity as a first order goal in machine learning systems or any systems, any human decision-making systems. Um, so that's the positive uh, that, that, that I'm gonna leave everybody with. Fantastic. Um, we got a little bit of time left, uh, Tina, and then, I'll, and then I'll let Tracy uh, take us on home. Yeah, so I mean, uh, AI technology and machine learning in particular obviously have been used for lots of um, good purposes. For example, disaster assistance or in medical informatics, imaging, right? You have an MRI and, you know, you can train a machine to say, well, you should look at this area, right? 
Or for example, right now, um, during COVID-19, the Network Science Institute that I'm part of, we're doing a lot of work in terms of, can we find better therapeutics for COVID? We have COVID's fingerprint, we have the fingerprints of the drugs we know, the natural compounds we know, can we find one that would be better for COVID? Or for example, in terms of network epidemiology, you know, can we, for example, predict um, you know, what is to come, right? And these are very complicated models, but you know, they're helping to figure out what to do in terms of what policies should be enacted. The other aspect of it is basically like policing the police with these algorithms, right? When you have a policy, as I understand it, that policy has to have some intent. And then when you execute that policy, you're, you're getting data from that execution and you can try to reconstruct the intent of the policy. And if they don't match, then you can say, well, something has to change, right? Stop and frisk in New York, for example, right? If you were to collect that data, try to reconstruct the policy, it seems like the policy was to harass uh, young um, black and brown males, right? And clearly that wasn't what they initially said, right? So there are a lot of these kinds of things that one can do to benefit society, right? But, but these are more, I would say, contained, right? In terms of disaster relief or medical informatics and so on and so forth. Then it gets harder, for example, in terms of misinformation or democratic uh, backsliding. This is something I've worked at where like, we know what to do to improve our democracy. It's just that we don't want to do them in terms of, for example, misinformation spreading through the internet, et cetera, et cetera. It's just that we, we don't have the willingness to do them. Thanks, Tina. Uh, Tracy, maybe you could just take us on home here yeah, in the last just, five minutes. Just a, a couple of points. Um, I, I really like what Raid um, said in terms of thinking about this, you know, the, the old trope fairness versus accuracy. It, 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 um, it also connects up with something he said earlier, which is that computer scientists, data scientists who are working on these issues understand accuracy as predicting something that's happened in the past, right? Which, you know, brings up the kind of path dependency point he illustrated with his three examples. And so I guess the question I would have for the group and for people listening is, you know, what is it that's going to motivate the people who are actually doing these things? I mean, maybe some of them exist out there. You know, I've, we've got two great computer scientists on our panels who are, who are doing this. But to think for, in a forward-looking way themselves, right? So, you know, Raid says, we can do it. Um, but, you know, who are you waiting to ask for someone to ask to do? rather than generating your own models of like, actually let us be the leaders, let us show you through our technological prowess, how to imagine a better world. I mean, so, you know, this is supposed to be the part of the, the session where we imagine the future. And, you know, as a black woman uh, who reads a lot of science fiction, I wanna say that, you know, the Afro-futurist vision is usually pretty pessimistic, um, you know, so, if I'm going to be optimistic, you know, what is going to be my model? You know, what's the world I'm uh, imagining? You know, we have to think about that. And I guess as we're imagining that world we want to live in, um, we don't have to think necessarily about what our technological limitations are. You know, any one of us can do this to imagine the world we want to live in. And then I guess, you know, it's the job of the, of the tech folks to do it. I guess I just want to put a little bit more impetus on them to 
participate in the imagining of the future rather than being constrained by the world that has existed as you know the lodestar for perfection in in your work great so great um what a terrific panel uh we're gonna shift over to question to q a now for we got about a half an hour uh and so our moderator alex has come on so I'll hand it to him to give us but a take. Actually, us a Brandon, oh. before we go, oh. yes, right, sorry. Uh, Tracy asked the great question. Oh. I'm going to put Rahid on the spot. Oh, okay. <laughs> Rahid, you want to you want to take Which a step is... first to Tracy's question, and then we'll and then we'll go to Alex with the with the questions from the from the audience. Well, she asked a couple of different questions. Which, so, Tracy, you want to? So Which... I like the one about the the you know who are you waiting for. Yeah, and I think I think that that's the, that's the question I ask a lot of the, the the computer scientists who are kind of on the deep end of theory of theorizing about fairness. Like, who are you waiting for to actually do this? And and I think that that is a problem with you know before we started the panel, we were kind of chatting about conferences, and and there is this conference in that's kind of somewhat of an intersection of different disciplines: computer science, social science, law, but it's still sort of computer science more than it needs to be. That's sort of focused on the theory of fairness. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of this work is too theoretical without any actual context. So I think as a field, th there is, there is a, unfortunately, a gap between practice and, 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 and the field. And I think it has to be then. So, so at least <laughs> I'm trying to figure out sort of how to, you know, all of my work is with governments and nonprofits, because I feel like that's where the implementation is happening. That's where the actions are happening. But that doesn't scale. You know, if you work with one city, LA, it doesn't mean that every other city is going to do this if you work with one country or one state. So, so I think the question is, how, how do we take, I, mean, I think what we need is, is ways to expose the, the computer science people to real problems and real people <laughs> and real, you know, I guess data because, with, you know, so, so combinations of right? not objective data, just real data. Um, but then I think we need to kind of have more of these types. Of, I mean, this is a good example of different fields talking and we're using different vocabulary and, and we're learning about what the words are. And we do that, you know, again, all of us do that and that's why we're here, but that doesn't mean that that's the norm in any of our disciplines. Um, so I don't think we're waiting for anyone. I think I think it has to be kind of. Right now, it's 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 both sides have to be proactive about going out and saying, I just want to help. I'm not in it for tenure or paper. Tina heavily has tenure, right? So you don't care. Uh, and I think that's what we that's part of it is our disciplines don't incentivize this type of work today, uh, at least yes. in academia, and yes. and we need to change that. And again, that's. You know, and then we can sort of say, well, it's somebody else's problem, but it is our problem. Uh, so Absolutely. That was my non-answer. <laughs> no, that's terrific. And let me just say, it's, it's perhaps even more pronounced in philosophy because very often ethicists do not, are really just working on very theoretical questions. They're not, they don't have the lived experience. They're not even, they're just not aware of actual ethical problems in the societies that, in which they're living. I hate to say that. This is why we need more, we need more, uh, rubber meets the road, even in ethics, in, I think, in every field. Yeah. Yeah. And if I may follow up on that, the incentive structure is not good across the board. 
I mean, if you look at the papers that are coming out in computer science in these peer-reviewed conferences and journals, it's really little tweaks to things, right? And then if you look at like the master's students, I teach some of the moneymaker courses, right? They're just like, teach me the algorithms that are going to make me a lot of money. I don't care, right? And when I try to talk to them about ethics, it's just they don't care. But what is interesting is that they don't see that, for example, the algorithm that you're developing may enable misinformation that may get somebody elected that will then change the law and you can no longer get H1B visa, right? right. They don't <laughs> see that link, no, right? And so absolutely. the incentive structure is just not there. It's just, I just want to make money. So teach me the money-making algorithms. And right? it's either money or, you know, like I had this conversation, I'm teaching a class right now. It's a machine learning and public policy. It's half the students are machine learning department, half from the policy school. It's painful. And one of the students, machine learning PhD student comes to me and says, I'm a machine learning PhD student. I just want to do math. Why are you having us think about these, these things? And I think that's the problem. We, we have, you know, another student came last year and said, well, I'm going to go to the public, uh, private sector. So this ethics class that we did, I don't think it's relevant to me. Like what? It's exactly relevant to you just because so <laughs> it's, it's yeah. painful, you know. I mean, and actually like when I go uh, to my people and I give talks, I'm like, how many of you are okay with your algorithm being used on you? Nobody raises their hand. Not even the white guys <laughs> raise their own hand. Right. So they know there's a problem, but it's just like, look, whatever. Like they don't see that one leads to another, to another, to another. And, you know, game over, uh, which is very, very frustrating. But the incentive structure within the, the CS and the tech, the STEM fields have to change because right now we're just like, oh, look, this is such an interesting problem. Like I remember when we were living in the in near New York. I would go out with my friends who work in finance. I would come back and I'm like, oh, this is amazing problems. And Brandon would say, get away from the cliff. Get away from, because again, exactly as Rahit said, like, this is a really cool problem. I don't care about this. Look at the math, right? And so you have to get away from that. And like, somebody could get hurt, right? And so you shouldn't- This, this panel is amazing. It could go on forever. I do want to give Gabby a chance to maybe get a last word in here before we go to questions, if, if you've got something. I'm in it for tenure. Uh, don't talk to me about incentives. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, that's a great way to segue into Q&A. Alex, you want to take us into Q&A? Uh, yes, I just want to know to, I think, S. Mason Dambrot. Uh, apologies to single you out in the, in the Zoom call, but you have your hand up. I, I can't uh, relay any question you may or may have. If your hand's up, you need to write it in the Q&A uh, option within Zoom. So with that said, I'm going to start off with Thomas. So Thomas uh, isn't here anymore in the chat, but he asked two questions. The first of which related to um, the addictive nature of the ex attention extraction models of so social media. But I think you guys kind of went over that uh, in a lot of detail. And there's not more to comment on. So the next question uh, they had was, algorithmic bias is analogous to the defense mechanisms outlined by ego psychologists. A key fact about ego defense mechanisms is, the, is that they are not directly observable, particularly by the very people deploying them. What does this say about the potential to reduce, much less eradicate, algorithmic bias? I see Gabby really, she wants this one. Gabby, go for it. 
Uh, yeah, um, I mean, it's really great because it's exactly at the focal point of my research is looking at these two domains, that is psychology and computer science, and trying to come up with ways that they could inform one another. Um, and actually, the direction of import for me was initially the opposite direction. That was, uh, everyone was, a, you know, a couple years ago, very concerned about cases of so-called implicit bias, that is, by social biases that we might not be aware that we have, which are very similar to these sorts of um, ego defense mechanisms. And so uh, it was actually the direction of noticing that biases could manifest in algorithmic decision making that forced me to this sort of deflationary view of how biases could manifest uh, just from data and innocuous processes in the human decision-making domain. So it actually went the opposite direction for me. But insofar as both are cases, I think, where we're getting away from this overly intellectual view, as I was saying, about how biases manifest, that there is a person who is intentionally deciding to treat people differently on the basis of their belonging to a particular demographic, that we're getting away from that model and towards something more nuanced, where the, the biases that we're picking up are, in some sense, adaptive, they're supposed to help us because we're limited in the information that we have, we're prone to shortcuts, uh, but that they could still be problematic nonetheless, I think is exactly right. I'll maybe go to the next question. What do you think? In the interest of getting more questions, let's okay, do it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so uh, we have user 3845681. Uh, I'm sorry, that's the only way we can identify you. Uh, so they wrote, uh, can you give specific examples of necessary bias and variance in programming algorithms? Who wants to take this? Was Tina, do you want to, or Raid? We should, or what do you think? Who, who wants to take this one? Uh, I have Raid take it. You want to take it, Raid? Um, sure, I mean, I think, I, I, think, I think that's again a terminology issue rather than a sort of a deep philosophical question, I think. So, so for example, uh, if the user 3845681 is still there, um, basically search for things like inductive bias, right? So, so we have to make certain assumptions in these types of algorithms for them to generalize to the future, per se. And so one assumption might be a linearity assumption where these relation inputs and outputs are linearly related. And if we don't make that assumption, there is no hope of generalizing. So we kind of make these assumptions in order for us to, to build these algorithms to generalize. And that's what we call by the, I think Gabby mentioned in the beginning is with the inductive bias. Um, so that it's not the, it's, it's a different, it's a terminology thing and, 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 and not a, uh, yeah. And if other people have better explanations. Well, and also on the variant side, if there's no noise in the data, it's a lot harder to learn inductively, like you can't. So you need noise and you need bias. Yeah, I had a lot more mathy problem, like don't fit the data <laughs> with a zillion parameters. <laughs> right, that's true. That's a bias. That's a good one. Yeah, simplicity bias. Yeah, absolutely. I think, can I just add though, um, I, I agree that there are uh, terminological differences. And I think one of the things I'm trying to bring out in my research is that these differences might be an emphasis more so than like categorical differences. And so one of the things I'm trying to bring out is that some of these decisions to use like a simpler model, like linear regression or like a non-parametric model, like these decisions have ramifications that go up the line. And so uh, even though it's true that we're using relatively innocuous conceptualizations of bias, I take it that some of the more systematic biases or the social biases that we're concerned about share some commonalities with these decision points earlier in the causal net. And so 
there there is a relationship there and uh yeah it's yeah i mean i think i think there's a deeper conversation which we can leave for a later time which between the design choices that a machine learning system developer makes in the data sources to use how you process them how you think about them and the downstream biases and i think that's a very we, we don't talk about them very much you know there's no textbook that has uh things to think about at each step to deal with bias. And, and so when I'm teaching this, those are the things that we're teaching about. But yeah, I think that's a, that's a different conversation because that's a huge blind spot for, for the, the developers right now. You know, before we were all online, we had a little joke among ourselves about writing algorithms to check out our algorithms, right? And uh, that did seem a little silly or aggressive. But, um, you know, there are some people who have this hope and we're talking about the far future I don't subscribe to this, but I'm just going to say it, that, you know, there may be some way for the computers to learn to be more ethical. And how would you go about doing that? And is it possible even, or are they opposite of, you know, are there just, are algorithms and ethics just uh, like oil and water, they just really don't mix, or they're opposites in some way. Another idea of this would be that uh, if we had a super intelligent computer, let's say, and someone like Peter Relton thinks that super intelligent computers might also be ethical because that would be the only way for them to become super intelligent, blah, blah, blah. But it's interesting to think, well, uh, could a supercomputer, we, we grant that maybe there'll be more intelligence than we will be, but I don't think it would be possible. Isn't this a paradox that they would be more ethical than we could be? Because how would we know that's the case? That's a weird, I think it's a little bit of a paradox. Anyway, anyone think that computers might ultimately evolve towards making ethical decisions themselves without supervision? Well, I, let me jump in on this. I think, I mean, I tend to think of things so, in more of a virtue ethics kind of way, like um, who are the exemplars? Who do I look to uh, who I really think that they, they're acting in a really virtuous ways? And uh, to the extent that we're looking for exemplars and we're, and, we're, and we're modeling exemplars, then I think, sure, machine learning could also model exemplars. I don't see why they couldn't. Yeah, in fact, so, so that reminds me of something that uh, Rima Basu said. Rima Basu is a professor at Claremont McKenna Philosophy. And she was like, imagine a time where you could order an Uber driver who's a consequentialist or an Uber driver that is a virtue ethicist or something like that, right? With autonomous vehicles, et cetera, where you could put in the requirement for the driver that you want. <laughs> I've stuck with me. It's an interesting idea. They get different tips. That's the next question. Oh, of well, I mean, think about think about uh, think about chess. I mean, the chess, the 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 deep learning chess machines are so much better than us, but we still we know that they're better. How? <laughs> if they are better, how do we know? Same. It's the same thing. I don't think it's fundamental. Well, we know they're better because they beat us, right? <laughs> no, no. But I mean, specifically, we still have the sense that they're improving, even when they're way better than us. Yeah. They could just search the space better. You know, it's a big, bigger space. They just, you know. Well, but maybe that's all ethics is too. Maybe, maybe you just, as I said, you have to have the right rules and the right exemplars and you have to learn what that space is. You know, this like. is being taped. <laughs> I would love to find out what Rahid, and I don't know, Alex, where we are in the, in the, in the Q&A. So if this question isn't appropriate, I just, I'll throw it out. You can manage the questions and then go ahead. But I just want to tie something that Gary said at, in, and Brandon said to something Raid said earlier, which is to, that machines could model exemplars. But of course, if we think of exemplars of, you know, particularly virtuous people, no one 
of course, is virtuous. Uh, humans are, are not, you know, unrelentingly virtuous, like all the time, except for Jesus. I will use my own face tradition. <laughs> um, so, you know, and, and, you know, for a lot of people, and that wasn't real, right? So like all of the exemplars that we have um, are of real people are never virtuous all the time, which brings to mind Rahid's point about, um, he said, well, this is an incremental risk that the machine is going to, whatever we program is going to do it all the time in a way in which, you know, humans never are that way. And I was just wondering if, if, if you could reflect on just that idea a little bit, um, Raid, about using humans as the um, exemplar of the virtue that um, a machine could be modeled after in a world in which we know there is no such thing as any virtuous human all, all the time. Does that even make sense? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting, and I think Tina has talked about similar things before. It's sort of right now, these these systems don't use people as exemplars. They use, let's say, people's decisions or actions as exemplars, right? So we take historical judges, we take all the judges, and we take their decisions, okay. and we say, okay, let's build a computer to replicate and aggregate all these decisions. And the computer is going to be wrong many of the time. So then we tell the computer which mistakes are worth more than others. Um, and right now we say every mistake is worth the same. So then it gets most white decisions right. And then that's what happens in, in the world, right? And so now if we sort of think about, and I, and I to be totally honest, I haven't thought about that, right? But it's a really good point, Tracy, you're making is, what if the, the, the exemplars were humans? And then some of this, you know, some of this variant sort of gets embedded where we're really using humans as examples and trying to figure out what would this human do versus that human do. And, and then it's maybe also, as, as Tina was saying, it becomes kind of an expert witness or, or a medical test, which is just another input. Like, well, here's what this human would say, and here's why, and here's what this human would say. And so you sort of have this committee that's advising you uh, that you can talk to and then make a decision. Um, some of it is auditable, some of it is not. So I think it makes, it makes a lot of sense to kind of think about it that way and see. Um, and again, I mean, the danger in all of these things is that eventually these, these systems have some values embedded. And, and where are those values coming from? Does every, every time a new owner or decision maker takes over, do they then change the values to suit, suit their values and, and all that kind of stuff? But I think it's, a, it's I'm sure other people have better thoughts around this um, but. Yeah, so this is something I have thought about, um, and, and usually I get a pushback in that, for example, there are better doctors or worse doctors, right? And in fact, if you think about law or medicine, it is very much this idea of apprenticeship learning, right? And so can you build a machine learning algorithm that's an apprentice to, let's say, a good judge? Let's say Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who recently passed away, right? Um, the problem is that is a very difficult machine learning problem right, to see why Ruth Bader Ginsburg made certain decisions, his reasoning processes, that's very difficult. It's not as simple as thumbs up or thumbs down, right, uh, which is really what it is now in terms of a lot of the algorithms you're seeing in terms of pre-trial uh, disposition, hiring, et cetera, right, they're like gladiator, right, Tina thumbs down, Brandon thumbs up. Um, and so it's a hard problem. And because it's a hard problem, we typically don't tackle it. 
because it takes longer to have a paper out. <laughs> would, it, would an act of uh, an act of mercy coming from a computer mean the same to someone as an act of mercy coming from a human, even if it were perfectly well modeled? Um, that's a good question. I think for the computer, it's just going to go with the objective function it has, right? So in fact, usually for, for recommendation systems, uh, we try to model items and not so much humans because humans are more complicated. Um, so, you know, we have, we have this term mercy that means something in particular and that seems to be a very human quality. It's anyway, it's an interesting dilemma when it comes to applying it through a computer. So there, there are people who are working on this thing called affective computing, which is where the computer will develop empathy. So my colleague Stacy Marcella is working on it and others are working on it too, where you, the computer will learn empathy. And if like an element of being merciful is empathy, then that's what they're working on. Alex, is he, uh, Alex, are there more questions? Yeah, yeah, we have, yeah, uh, we have three more. We can get to all three, I think. Is that, is that? Kosher, is that good? Okay. Um, so we have uh, Sarah Chen who who's asking or who wrote, I really like the idea of labeling algorithms based on user fit. For example, this algorithm is only useful slash accurate with white males. If this becomes a norm, do you think this will encourage more diverse teams slash community involved developments or will it actually lead to more exclusionary products or algorithms? Um. I guess for me, I don't think of it that way. I think of it more as like ha having, forcing the algorithm designer to be more honest, right? Because right now we tend to not be honest. We say my algorithm will work on everything under the sun, right? So I work on complex networks. For a long time in computer science, we would say my algorithm will work on any complex network you give it. But that's clearly not true because biological networks are very different than social networks. Just their structure is different. So I think, so I look at it in terms of um, more holding the algorithm designer to be honest, to say, okay, this algorithm works like this, like the auditing that Rahid mentioned, and it's only designed for this subpopulation, which of course, as Rahid um, nicely put, right now, drugs aren't so much like that. Right. Though I guess there's some of it, right? Like if you're pregnant, you should not take it. If you're under 12, you should not take it, right? There's some of that in there. Um, but I actually take it as just having the algorithm design, to be honest. It sounds yeah, this... though, Tina, that you would think that people would be internally motivated though, if they were honest with that kind of specificity to try to do better pre precisely because of the ground setting claims about well, we think it works all the time. And so if they're constantly faced with, it only works in this kind of context that you, you know, in the back of your head or left unsaid, it's probably in the front of your head, uh, <laughs> is that um, they're going to, that you think they're gonna change what they do, but we don't know, right? Yeah, this I relates agree. to um, the initial point that I brought up about uh, objectivity under the, or bias under the guise of neutrality or under the guise of, objectivity. And I think what Tina is mentioning is right, that right now there's this guise that there's universal applicability when in fact it's actually only useful for particular demographics. And I think this question brings out that 
making those uh, assumptions or uh, biases explicit might help in holding the programmers or designers feet to the fire. But I think it also has another really important element, which is um, making good on some of the claims that people from marginalized demographics are already aware of. That is giving voice to the disparate um, effect of various um, programs or drugs. Like, that they're already trying to point out that this impartiality exists and that it's currently being ignored and so insulating the biases that are just a part of the the normal um, run-of-the-mill programs I think is really important that we could give voice to those sorts of discrepancies. Um, so I think there is a risk for it being leading to more exclusionary practices but I think also just uh, making good on the fact that people are uncomfortable with the bias or with the programs already is important. Okay, so next question is from Ralph Electual off of YouTube. Uh, before I get to his question, um, I just want to shout him out because he's been commenting the whole time on YouTube. Very interesting comments and summarization uh, uh, occurring. Uh, my favorite comment of his, a good summation, was how many of you are happy to have your algorithms used on you? Nobody. That was, I, li I like that comment a lot. Uh, but to his, to his question, uh, this is the, I was trying to, like, I meant there may be some editorial work here because i'm trying to like formulate it the best way because he kind of wrote a broken comment into a question so it's, it's sort of like balancing between accuracy so using the passive predictor and fairness what will motivate people to do the right thing I think Rahid, uh, you want to take that because the, the, this whole uh, notion that there's a trade-off, as you just um, uh, so Rahid had, had mentioned something about the fact that there's this false notion of accuracy versus fairness, right? Um, so it's not like you have to have one versus the other. Um, I don't know if that answers this question, but Rahid. Yeah, I mean, I wonder. I think. I think, again, I think of accuracy as sort of a made up construct, right? It's a very subjective, like we come up with some definition and we stick with it. In practice, I think in most of, again, most of the work I do, accuracy is kind of a, uh, another way of call, saying efficiency, right? which is I have resources to help this many people and want to find is the, 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 the list my model helps me select has as many people from that as possible. So it's efficiency. And so, yes, there might be a trade-off between efficiency and, and, and equity and effectiveness. And, and I think, you know, we, theoretically there would be, but I think we're, what I was saying was that in, in practice, for many problems we're finding, there is no empirical evidence of, of that. But also, you know, I, I don't like the term accuracy, right? Because somehow it, it by definition seems like it's the right thing to do. And, and accuracy is just saying, at least the definition we think of as, as accuracy in these types of systems is just saying, replicate as much of the past as possible uh, and treat every individual case equally, each error equally. And that's very narrow definition of what, what, and so I think I often sort of, you know, at least when I'm working with students, it's sort of, uh, or policymakers as well, let's come up with the performance goals that we have, what is the overall policy goal, and then let's define the thing that, that we then call performance, and that might include a bunch of different things, but, and, and we do that all the time for, for other types of systems, what's, why not do it for this? Um, so yeah, I mean, I think, I think the, the, the trade-off is kind of more how we think about these things in a, in a more of a knee-jerk way, but 
but it, it, it doesn't always appear to, to, to exist in practice. Okay. Um, do you have time for two more questions? Or just one more. What do you guys? Why don't you say both of them and then we can. Okay. Okay. You know. So, so the first one's from Janu. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Janu writes, how widespread is the use of facial recognition in the Western world and what regulation is coming? And then the, the, the second one is from an anonymous uh, viewer. Uh, how can the new Supreme Court justice make fair decisions? I assume they're referring to the, uh, I guess, uh, what is the assumed nominee, Amy Cohen Barrett or Coney Barrett, excuse me if I, I botched her name. Is religion a bias when it comes to social justice? Maybe she wants to take the first one. <laughs> well, I'll say something about that since I am the law professor. Um, not that anyone else would have anything else to say, but I, the first thing to say is, is it a bias? I really liked Gabby's um, discussion about biases before um, earlier. I don't know if the questioner was, was on the webinar at that point, but yes, of course it is. <laughs> You're right. Um, at, but I, I think, you know, implicit in the question, given the fact that that was the second part of the question and the first half was like, how can this person make fair decisions, is this idea that that bias, you know, whatever it is, I already just mentioned, uh, you know, my own faith tradition, which of course is a bias in, in a sense, is um, uh, pointing to some sense of um, this person, should she be confirmed, capability of making fair decisions. I think that goes back exactly to Raid's question, which is what does it mean to say um, a fair decision, the right decision? It definitely ties into this question of how we understand what accuracy is and tying that to what's right. And just to blow it up a little and in, in the work, work that I do in, in you know criminal legal systems, People often talk about policy that works. You know, well, this works. Well, what the hell are you talking about when you say that, you know, stop and frisk works? Works to do what <laughs> is always, you know, the question. So that probably wasn't a satisfying answer for you, but like that is certainly an answer to the, an answer to the Supreme Court question. I have no idea about facial recognition. Um. Yeah, I guess in terms of facial recognition, as you have probably heard, um, um, some companies like Amazon, Microsoft, and IBM have announced that they will like stop or pause their facial recognition offerings for law enforcement, but they're not the big companies. So facial recognition is being used. I don't know how wide, you know, I, what is widely, but is it seems to be prevalent. So before the pandemic, when I was flying to Europe, they're like, we don't need your boarding pass, right? And they would just scan my face and I would go through. Or coming back from Germany, there was a faster way of going through immigration where again, they would do facial recognition and I would just go, go through and I didn't have to talk to anybody, right? And so, and of course, you know, um, the facial recognition problems with facial recognition have been very well documented uh, by Joy uh, Bolliamini et al. Uh, in the Algorithmic Justice League that, that she has. 
Um, in terms of regulations, I think somebody has to get sued and sued big with a lot of money. <laughs> so that's something would happen. And right now that has not happened. Perhaps, you know, the unfortunate gentleman in Detroit um, that was arrested because the facial recognition couldn't tell one person from another. Um, I think he is suing um, uh, the city. And again, like with the facial recognition in, in particular, just so you know, some of the ethical problems here Google knows that it has a problem with facial recognition. Like they don't have enough quote unquote black people in their data set. So what do they do? They hire a contractor. The contractor says, okay, which city has a lot of black people? They like Atlanta. They go to Atlanta. Then they start looking for um, easy, quote unquote, easy black people that they could take lots of pictures and have them sign a consent, a consent form. So they target homeless people and they target college students. They have them sign a consent form. They give them $5. They take pictures of them. And they're like, okay, now we got our black people. Well, clearly that's wrong, right? It's because now the system believes that black people are either homeless, predominantly male, that's where they were going for, or, or college students. I mean, so they just go from one ethical quagmire to another. You know, and what I'm saying was, was you know, it's publicly available. There were news about it. And Google's like, it wasn't us. It was the contractor, right? Um, so... Yeah. yeah. And, and I think, I mean, so, so, so there are some regulations already there, right? So over the last year, San Francisco, Seattle, oh, yeah. um, Portland. and Portland have been the larger places. Oakland, um, I think Somerville, Massachusetts, um, and have also banned. So these cities have banned the use of face recognition tools by city agencies. And the big one has been the police departments, but in general by city agencies, there are probably other 10 states that have pending legislation that's going on. Um, not, you know, New York has a bunch actually, not, not if it is from what I remember has passed. Um, so, so a lot of this is happening. On the other hand, I was at this event a couple of weeks ago where police departments were talking about their experiences after these bans. And that was a totally fascinating where they're coming up with all sorts of loopholes. Like, well, we can't use it directly, but if a consumer or another, a, a, a retail store that has cameras and face recognition, if they give it to us, we can use it. So I think there's sort of this adversarial thing going on right now where how do we, you know, the intention of the ban wasn't who can own it and who can not own it and where it comes from. The intention was you cannot use it, but the way it was implemented very detailed and we're doing the same thing right now in Pittsburgh and it's like it, it's all these exclusions exist. Um, so I think regulation is, is needs to happen, but it, it and, and it's, it's happening, but, um, but there also is going to be this adversarial thing going on. Gabby, did you want to? Yeah. Yeah, add real quick. I think the example of facial recognition software brings out really nicely something that Rahid was saying about uh, talking about accuracy, really like narrowing us too much on a particular goal that might not be the sort of thing that we want to focus on. Uh, so I too have heard Joy Balouini talk about um, her audits of facial recognition software. And when it initially started, it was like, uh, and a lot of these discussions about um, the illegality of them come back to the accuracy issue. That is that they're only something like 50% accurate with uh, non pale male faces. And so this focus on accuracy, the response among corporations was of course, okay, we'll fix it exactly as Tina said, get more data that makes it more accurate on uh, women and people of color and elderly individuals. And Joyce talks about how the response anecdotally from the black activist community was like, 
please don't do this. Like it wasn't, we don't want uh, accurate machines or facial recognition programs. It's like, we don't want facial recognition software at all. And so this focus on accuracy, I think is like a bit of a red herring because it makes it sound like if we could only get more accurate facial recognition software, it's like, we also need the safeguards against those accurate programs being used for nefarious ends. And so the discussion about what makes for an ethical or fair uh, machine learning program, like it really goes well beyond the scope of just the pure mathematics behind the program to, uh, what context is it being used for and what sorts of ends is it trying to achieve? That might be a good place to stop. I think so. Um, what a fantastic panel. Tracy, Tina, Gabby, Raid. Uh, thank you. And thanks uh, so much to Ed and Jerry and, and the center. Um, and thank you, panel. Brandon, for organizing it and doing such a great job moderating it. Thanks, Ed. I hope to see you guys in New York City back in person uh, soon, <laughs> you know? So and, do we. Yep. Thank you all. Uh, and uh, everyone, keep an eye out on our website and people on our mailing list. Uh, future roundtables will likely be um, uh, advertised shortly. Thank and you thank all you, And thank Just you, fantastic. Jerry, for... Thanks, everybody. Thank, thank you. Thank you all. Be safe uh, out there. Take Bye -bye. care. Thank you. Ciao. Thank you. Ciao.